I've never really been all that great under pressure. Uh, I think one of the first times I came to realize this was when I was in a basketball game playing in high school. Yes, I played basketball in high school. Some of you find that unbelievable. Somehow you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I couldn't play high school basketball. However, I did play high school basketball, and in this one particular game, we actually were playing uh, the best team in the county, Southeast High School. This was down in the Bradenton, Sarasota area, and they were good, and they were way better than we were. In fact, their five starters uh, actually went on to all play in uh, college basketball. Uh, hardly any of us did, of course, and uh, so we were definitely outmanned. We believed, and our fans believed, that we were going to get run out of the gym. But that didn't keep our fans from really showing up at this particular basketball game. In fact, we had more fans there at that game than any other in the course of the year. And to everybody's surprise, with the final seconds ticking down of the first quarter, we were actually only down by one point. It truly was unbelievable. And so I had the ball in my hands, and I'm sure all of you are know this has got to end well. And so the ball was in my hands. I went to shoot. I got fouled. And so now I went to the free throw line. And so I had the opportunity to either, A, tie up the game by making one shot or possibly go ahead into the second quarter by making both shots. So I went to the free throw line, and, and I have to be honest with you, I was nervous. And I took the ball, and I was about to shoot, but I have to say something, first of all, before I do tell you what happened. Um, the, the, the phrase, or the term free throws is a little misleading, because it really does sound like it's really simple. I mean, it, it, it is true, free throws will cost you nothing. They are free throws. You have to pay anything for it. You get up on the line. Nobody's trying to keep you from shooting. You could take all the time in the world that you want to to shoot the ball. It's not very far away. In fact, the truth is, if you are a basketball player, you literally shoot hundreds, maybe even thousands of free throws uh, during the season, before, during, and after practice. It's, for the most part, fairly simple, and usually you make a large portion of those free throws, unless you're Shaquille O'Neal, but you make a majority of those free throws most of the time. But it is a lot different when you are shooting in practice and then when you are shooting in the game and all eyes in the entire gym are on you at that particular moment. So I took the ball from the ref and I shot an air ball in front of hundreds of people shot an air ball, and when I mean air ball, I mean no backboard, no rim, no, no, no net, no anything, two feet short of the basket itself. It hit nothing but air. That, that's all that happened. And of course, at that moment, you know what happens, the collective sigh, oh, the whole crowd, oh, and, and that, that makes you feel so much better. And then finally, people are collective, and they're feeling bad for me, and they're like, oh, it's okay. Hey, you'll get it next time. Hey, keep your chin up. You can do it. Hey, loser. There's always one in the crowd. And so at this point, you probably are thinking to yourself, well, it's over for him for the second shot. I mean, he is just, he's done. But the truth of the matter is, me failing so miserably at this point, really, I felt like I had nothing to lose. It really took all the pressure off. The only way it could get worse, honestly, is if somehow I shot it and it ended up in the other basket. That's the only way. <laughs> and I knew that that wasn't going to happen. So what I did was I just kind of simply just did what I had done so many times. Without all that pressure, I just went to the line, took the ball, 
kind of spinned it backwards, hit the ground, came up into my hands. I went ahead and bounced it three times, kind of bounced, bounced over, looked up, and went ahead and shot. Your pastor swished it right in there. Just nothing but that. Just smack. Thank you. Thank you. So I tied the game up going into the second quarter. Now, the truth is, and I'll just tell you the end, we ended up losing by 40 or 50 points for the rest of the game. So it really didn't make much point from, from, from that point on. But here is my point. The point is most of us don't do well under a lot of pressure. And the truth of the matter is, if I'm being completely honest with you, there's always just a great amount of pressure around the Easter service. And it's for everybody. And part of it is, it begins with some of you ladies, you just need to be able to pick out that perfect Easter dress or outfit, and you're trying to figure it out. And you're like, I've got 24 out, I don't know which one is the best, you're looking for it everywhere. For some of you, for one of you moms and, and, and wives, maybe you're looking to be able to, you got a lot of people coming over this afternoon, and you're thinking, okay, turkey or ham or whatever, do I have enough? Is it going to be any good? Oh, what's, what's happening? And then there is the pressure put on some of you poor souls who have been basically dragged here against your will. Uh, you have been asked time and time again for to come to church, to just visit church. Will you come? And, and finally, you're like, oh, fine, I, I'll come. When do you want me to come? Come Easter Sunday. And so you're here under pressure as well. And then, to this morning, there are literally all of these eyes looking right up here right now on the preacher, and everybody knows what to expect. It's just like a free throw. They know what to expect. They know that I've done it before, and so they're just expecting for me to deliver, and all I'm thinking is, please, Lord, no air ball. That's what I'm thinking. Lord, please, just no air ball. Let me hit something. And so here's, here's what I would like to do, and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the sermon except for making sure that our hearts are prepared is I just want to take all that pressure off for us for a minute. Ladies, you look lovely. <laughs> don't worry about the meal afterwards. Just don't even worry about it. If it doesn't go well, just do what we do, Panda Express. It, it saves, it covers a multitude of sins, all right? And, th and then for you as guests, let me just say that we're not going to make you stand up. We're going to not make you point you out and say, hey, tell us your name. Where are you from? We're not going to do any of that kind of stuff. You, you've already done the hardest thing. You showed up. Thank you so much for coming. You're our special guest. And here's the thing is, all the pressure is off me. If you're waiting for some home run or anything else like that, I'm not even really swinging for the fences, to be honest with you. All we want to do is what we do every single Sunday, and that is to gather together and make much of Christ by studying God's word and then responding in faith to what it is that we've heard. And so let's do this. Let's make much of Christ by just looking at three truths about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by looking at these truths, we will make much of him. So three things we wanna see. First of all, we see in the resurrection, the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. We pick up in verse 11, follow along if you will, if you have your Bibles with you. Verse 11 says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now to kind of catch you up to speed, Jesus had previously been in a city called uh, Capernaum where he had healed a, a centurion's uh, servant who was very close to death. Well, when you heal somebody just by your own word, close to death, it's going to draw a crowd. So a large crowd is around Jesus. They don't want to leave him, but Jesus has to leave. And when he leaves, the crowd leaves with him. So they follow him some 25 miles south to this small town called Nain. And as they're coming to the city entrance, the city gate, something interesting happens. Here's this large crowd rejoicing, and they are met by an equally large crowd coming out of the city gates. But instead of rejoicing, they're actually mourning. And so the Bible teaches us why they're mourning. Verse 12, he says, And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, Luke's description here is a description of one of the saddest pictures and scenes in really all the Word of God. This is a funeral procession. Maybe you've seen this. You're out driving one day, and as you're going down the road, all of a sudden you see blue lights or police lights, and, and you're not really quite sure what it is. And as it gets closer, you see a hearse right behind that, and then you see, then you see after that uh, a, a limousine and then a long stretch of cars with lights on. And at that point, because you want to honor them, you pull over to the side of the road. And whatever you were having a conversation about or what, whatever you were doing, you can't help but to stop for a moment and just feel bad, right? You just feel bad because you don't know who it is, but you begin to think to yourself, here is a family or somebody who has lost a loved one, and your heart begins to, in essence, go out with them. Well, that's what's happening here. Here is a group of people who are mourning over the loss of this young man. It's a young man who has died, and, and the one who is weeping the most is the mother of this young man because this is her only son that she has. And, and Luke tells us the significance of that is, is major, but it's even more so in the fact that she's a widow. She had already experienced great loss in her life. She had lost the love of her life, her husband. He had passed away, and all she had was her son. And now her son is gone. And as a widow under those conditions, she is literally the most vulnerable human being in the entire town. She has nobody to protect her. She has no one to be able to provide for her. So the whole scene is sad. They've lost someone, and now this woman, in essence, is lost herself. She feels as though that she has lost everything. And we know that these emotions had to be raw because the tradition of the day was you would be buried on the very day that you died. And so it must have been just a few hours before that her son, that she had ultimately lost her son. And so this is what we find here in the midst of all this. And then in verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Now, the word compassion really is, is a descriptive word which talks about kind of a, a, an essence of sympathy or even empathy that really grows out of the gut, the inner part of somebody. You, you know what this is. You've seen somebody suffering, and it just makes you sick to your stomach. It's almost as though you're feeling the same emotions as the person who is ultimately experiencing them. We have a Jesus who knows everything, but we have a Jesus who feels everything as well. He feels the pain and the concerns of his people and his compassion and his empathy for them. And so he is feeling literally this, this same loss, this unique loss that this woman is experiencing from the loss of her loved one at this particular moment. And so as he's grieving and as he's sensing all of this, it's important to remember that God, Jesus Christ, is compassionate about all our sufferings. If you're here today, I don't know some of you, I don't know why you're here or whatever it is and what's going on in your life, but God is concerned about every aspect of suffering in your life, whatever that might be. Whatever that's in your marriage, whatever that's in, in, in your finances, God feels that sense that identifies that. We do not have a high priest that cannot relate with your suffering. He gets it. He feels it. He's aware of it. But there does seem to be something very unique in the word of God and God's addressing or Jesus addressing to the distinct pain that comes with losing a loved one. We see it here that it immediately grabs his attention, this woman's sorrow over the loss of her son. But we see it even more clearly later on in another death, the death of Lazarus. This is found in the book of Luke as well. In the story of Luke, Lazarus dies, and, and, and this is a very good friend of Jesus. He, he, he knows him 
uh, well. He's eaten with him. He's stayed the night with him. He knows his sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus when he was out of town and said, you better come quick. He's on the verge of death. If you don't come, he's going to die. Jesus did come back, but he came several days after Lazarus had actually died. And then when he sees Mary and Martha, and they come and they cry to him, and they say to him, if you had only been here, he would have lived. Something interesting happens at this point. The shortest verse in all the Bible, one of the most profound, says, and Jesus wept. And Jesus wept. Now, from what I can tell, there's only three other times in all of the word of God that it talks about Jesus ever crying. One is here, and the two, well, I'm not even gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you everything. You gotta find out for yourself. But I will say this, and the other parts of the word of God, every time that it's mentioned, it always has to do with this idea of death and sin. He's grieved here in an incredible way. So the question is, what is it about the uniqueness of death that really moves the heart of God in such a way. Let me, let me just suggest two things. I think, it, number one, it's the finality of death. The finality of death. Look, if you live long enough, you can have some pretty bad things happen in your life. Would you agree? Some pretty hard times, pretty difficult times, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointments can happen in your life. But here's the deal. If you have a broken relationship, there's still always this hope of reconciliation. If there's sickness or a disease that you've been inflicted by and you're suffering from, there's always a hope of some kind of healing. If you're dead, that's it. There's no coming back from dead. It's final. And it's why death is so, so grievous in our hearts when somebody that we love is no longer there because guess what? They're no longer there. There's no more conversations you can have. There's no possibility of another text message. You can't, there's no late phone calls. It's, it's done. And Jesus grips and he understands what it means for there to be no more. And that is the extent of death. It's finality. But there's another aspect of it that grieves the heart of God. And that is the causality. And yes, that's an actual word. I looked it up. <laughs> causality is the relationship between cause and effect. The effect ultimately is death. The cause is sin. Sin is what brought about death. And this is in part what grieves the heart of Jesus Christ. Back in, in the beginning, when God had created the heavens and the earth, he created a, perfectly, a perfect world and a perfect garden, and he placed a perfect man and woman within it, and they had perfect fellowship with each other. They just hung out with God. Think about that. With God, you may brag, hey, guess who I sat here with today? They're like, yeah, I hung out with God all day. Cool. And they hung out with God in the cool of the day. And God said, hey, look, just by the way, just one rule. Uh, you can eat of anything, any of the trees in the garden except for one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you do, you will surely die. You will die. And at the moment that they ate it, they died. They, they didn't die because it was toxic fruit. They died because of the rebellion against God. They died spiritually. At that point, that wonderful fellowship that they had with God was forever lost. They couldn't have it again because their sin separated them from God. Physical death entered into them at that moment. They didn't physically die immediately, but death came into their DNA underneath the curse of sin. And now they're dealing with both sin and its outcome, its effect, which is ultimately death. And of course, we know that sin is in opposition to the very nature of God. Therefore, he hates it. He loathes it. It grieves him that his people are underneath the affliction of sin. This is, by, by the way, you can never really have a party at somebody's funeral. Have you ever noticed that? 
And you're like, that's weird. Well, the, the reason I even bring it up is because there are people who, who, who will say, hey, man, at my funeral, I don't want no sadness, don't want no tears. Man, I just want a party. I want you all to have a big barbecue, a pig picking, and, you know, just get out the balloons and the shakers and just be happy. Well, you know what? If you're a real jerk, that might be people's response. But if you love people and people love you, that's not usually the response, even for believers in Jesus Christ. For believers in Jesus Christ, a funeral oftentimes is a celebration of their life and is a celebration that Jesus Christ has saved them and they know their hope that they know that they're with Jesus Christ for all eternity. There's no doubt about that. But in the midst of all that, there's this weird dichotomy between sadness and joy. Joy that they're with Christ, sadness because there is loss. Do you know why? The reason you can never really celebrate in that particular way, the way that we're talking about, is because sin and or death is not a reward. It is the consequence of sin. And it is antithetical to what God had ultimately done. If there was no sin in the world, there would be no death. Jesus Christ knows it. And so just really quick spoiler alert before we move on, just understand this. Jesus is gonna raise this young man back to death or back from death. But it's because of the heartfelt compassion for those under the curse of sin. The resurrection begins with his compassion. If there was no compassion, there would have been no death on the cross. If there's no death on the cross, there'd be no possibility of resurrection. Therefore, this whole story today, this whole celebration begins with the fact that Jesus Christ is compassionate for your state and mine, sin and death that we face underneath the curse. So what we find is when we think on the resurrection, we think of the, the compassion of Jesus. Second, we think of the power of Jesus. Now, I gotta be honest with you. When somebody passes away, their loved one, the hardest thing to do is find words to be able to comfort them, isn't it? I mean, I've been doing this for a while now, and I still feel like I don't have the words. I've messed up plenty of ways. I don't use those words anymore. Other words are like, those are safer, those are good. This reminds me of, for example, when my wife, she was young when her father died. And obviously that's gotta be tremendously painful for a child, traumatic even. And she, and she says, I remember people coming up to me asking the same question over and over, how are you doing? And she goes, and I know they love me and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be dispersing by them. She didn't actually use that word, but it, it's my word. But anyway, she said, I didn't want to discourage them because I knew that they were just trying to be nice. And, and, and she goes, but I didn't know how to respond. What did you want me to say? I'm doing horrible. My dad died. How do you want me to respond? It's just hard to find the words. Sometimes we make the right words. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we just don't say anything at all, right? We don't say anything at all because we're like, well, at least I won't say anything bad. Well, Jesus has some words for this woman right after she loses her, 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 um, her uh, only son. This is what Jesus says to her. Get this. Per this is profound. Do not weep. I got to tell you, I was expecting more from Jesus. Do not weep. She's lost her only son. And here it is, stop crying. All right, I don't think he said it that way, but that's us, me reading into the text. And so we understand that he says, look, don't cry. And the truth of the matter is that doesn't sound compassionate at all. In fact, it sounds like the very lack of compassion. And it would have been a lack of compassion if that's all that Jesus said, and he didn't do anything else. But Jesus does much, much more. One author said this, he went beyond caring for her grief in doing something about it, conquering the death that caused her sorrow. 
So it's one thing for you and I to be able to go to people when they lose somebody and say, I'm so sorry, let me try to comfort you in the midst of this. But we can never truly comfort them. Why? It's always limited. Why? Because we cannot take away the very thing that has caused them the pain. Jesus can, and he does. And so what we find is in verse 14, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat, uh, oh, first of all, let me back up. It says, then he came up and he touched the bear and the bearers stood still. The bear, the B-I-E-R, was not something that you wanted to touch. It, it, what it was, was actually a platform that people would carry a dead body on. And according to, to Jewish law, you don't touch dead bodies and you don't touch things that have touched dead bodies or you become ceremonially unclean before God. You can't go and worship in the temple. These, these bearers would understand that. So after doing it, they would take a time to go and be serial, ceremonial cleansed in order to be able to worship at the temple once again. But you wanted to stay away from dead things. You didn't go up and touch. Jesus goes up directly, not even on accident, and touches the beer. Touches it, touches the platform that this young man is being carried upon at this point. But what's interesting is, is that there's a transition. The people were afraid that they were going to be contaminated by death. But here, death is contaminated by Jesus Christ. He comes and takes the contamination away. And instead of him being, death coming upon him, life comes into this young man. Now notice verse 14. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. What a strange description by Luke here, right? The dead man sat up and began to talk. I don't think so. If there's anything that I've learned from watching Pirates of the Caribbean 1,632 times, it is that dead men tell no tales, nor do they sit up, nor do they speak. So this is what? This is Luke's way of saying the dead man is no longer dead, he is alive. He sat up, he speaks, and now he's hugging mama, all right? So this is, this is an absolute miracle of God. Do you see the irony going on here? There's continued irony. The irony began when these two groups first met together. It was the rejoicing group and then the mourning group and they meet at the gate, they collide. Here's another aspect of irony. It is two only sons meeting. Did you notice this? Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, who is at this point alive, but he is destined to death on a cross. He meets and, and comes in, in contact with another only son, the only son of this widow who is dead, but now is destined to life. Why? Because Jesus spoke to him with the words of life. And so he comes alive at this particular point. And, and what's interesting to me is this isn't the only time. It, well, this is what you're seeing. If you look at the picture, here's what's happening. Here's Jesus coming. Here's the death march coming. When Jesus meets this death march, he says, stop. He stops death in its tracks. In essence, he says, death, you've gone far enough. You will go no longer. My word will bring him back to life. That's what's happening within the text. And so what's interesting about all this to me is, is the fact that this isn't the only person that Jesus heals. I had already mentioned he heals this man. He brings him back to life. He heals Jairus' daughter in a couple chapters, and then, uh, then Lazarus in a couple chapters after that. But the greatest resurrection we see of all was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus isn't just going to raise people from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. This is his argument in John chapter 10 and verse 18. He said, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. 
He says, but I lay it down uh, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it back up. He was just letting folks know, I'm about to die, but it's not because the Romans and the Jewish leaders want to kill me. It's because this is the plan for me to redeem you. I'm going to lay my life down. That's what I'm going to do. And he goes, I'm going to lay my life down, but I want you to beware of something. You may cry over that, but I'm going to let you know I'm going to take it right back up. Now, that's interesting to me, and that's helpful. Here's why. I'm always suspect with somebody who wants to help me to do something that they themselves cannot do. I don't know about you, but I'm that way. If I have a guy that weighs 732 pounds and says, let me show you how to get in shape, I'm a little skeptical at that point. Well, you know, when I was in college, there was, there was, a, there was a learning center uh, who, who, who basically, if you weren't doing well in school, you could go be tutored there. So all you had to do to be tutored is really stink at school. That's all you had to do. And so I would go in and would need tutoring. And then the people who would tutor, all they had to do was be able to pass the test or pass the class that they were tutoring, and they had to basically get an A on it. So that basically gave everybody confidence. Hey, look, I can help you do this because I myself have done it. The confidence that we have that we, will be, that we can be raised to life, both spiritual life and physical life, is the fact that Jesus Christ himself did it for himself. Nobody raised him up. He raised himself up. That is even the difference. And, and note that he did it with his word alone. Elijah, a thousand years before this, raises somebody from the dead, but he prays to the Father in order to be able to do it. Jesus, in his own authority, in his own power, says this, arise. And the man does what he has to do. The power to live is in the words of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we find when we place our faith in Christ. Please understand, when we repent, place our faith in Jesus Christ, we come face to face with Jesus. Jesus says, death will go no further. If you don't know Christ, you're dead. You are spiritually dead, which means you have no possibility of having any relationship with God at all. It doesn't matter how much you call, how much you pray, how much you say that you believe in God. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the life that you need. He has the power to be able to make that happen. And so when we repent and when death stops, at the moment that we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, something amazing happens. We truly become alive unlike any other time in our existence. We become spiritually alive unto God that our relationship is now restored. The wrath of God is now taken off. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are adopted as children of God. And we are sealed until the day of our, uh, until the day uh, of the end. And so what, what do we do with this? So we understand, okay, the resurrection does what? First of all, it gives us spiritual life. Second, it gives us what? It gives us hope. Hey, the older that I get, the more I begin to understand that death is coming for me and death is coming for those around me. And even though that's sad, and for all the reasons that we had previously talked about, the finality, uh, it, it, not only the finality, but also the causality of it, I get all that. But there is still a hope that I have that those that I know who have died in Christ, it is not goodbye, it's, hey, I'll see you later. And I'll see you and we'll be able to enjoy each other's in, in God's presence for all eternity that's the significance of Christ's power of the resurrection. That's what it does for us pra practically, pragmatically. And then there is this essence of sitting there going, God, I have no reason to fear death at all. People are like, dude, you may go over there as a missionary and you may die. So what will happen if I die? Spend eternity in glory with Jesus Christ. You mean that's the worst thing that, you know why we're afraid of death? One reason, 
We've never done it before. We've never done it before. But if we did, if we were able to come back to this life, if, if they were to ask this young man, so how did it go? What was it like? It really wasn't all that bad, to be honest with you. I got sick and that was hard. It took me a little while to get through it, but then I just closed my eyes and then I was in glory. And for some reason, um, now I'm back with all of you people. No, I'm just, uh, now I'm back. But you, you, see, you see the idea. Because of the power of Jesus Christ to give life, which is evidenced through his resurrection. He can do for us what he had done for himself is to bring us back to life and make us right before God. So that brings a third response or a third idea, and that is the praise of Jesus. This is very, very simple. We're almost done, by the way. If you're visiting, you're almost there. Number three is the praise of Jesus. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, we read this. It says, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. When you meet somebody who has the power over life and death, two things happen. Worship, I think we have that listed there. Can we list that? Worship and the next one, and witness. Worship and witness, that's what's happening within the text. As soon as this man comes alive, people can't believe it. It says that they were frightened. They were fearful. Not the kind of fearful of, hey, I'm scared of the dark. It is in awe. They are in awe of what they have seen. You and I would be as well. Dead person comes alive, <laughs> right? That's what you're gonna do. And so they are in awe in Christ. What do they begin to do? They begin to worship him. At this point, they don't really truly know that he is the son of God. They right now know he's at least a great prophet, much like Elijah was in the Old Testament a thousand years before then. But then some of them are actually getting it a little bit. Did you know when they begin to praise, they said, God has visited his people. They're right, that's it. There, some of them are beginning to understand that Jesus is more than a great prophet. He indeed is God because only God can give life. So they're beginning to understand this. So praise is a huge part of it. And then notice it's also not only worship, but it's also a witness. What happens? The word of this goes out everywhere. And people begin to hear about the power of Jesus Christ and the life that is found within him. Let me, let me just close and with this idea just for a moment. When people meet Jesus and they are made alive by Jesus, their life is marked by worship. I don't wanna be critical or harsh. I just wanna be loving and let you know this. We are so glad that you are here. If this is maybe just you were invited or you just come on Easter, whatever it is, we're so glad to have you. But I am so concerned for so many people who are flooding into the churches on Easter Sunday this morning. And it's simply because when you meet Jesus Christ and he makes you alive, you don't want to celebrate his resurrection just once a year. You celebrate it weekly. Every Sunday, you know why it's so hard for me to be able to preach on the resurrection? I'll be real honest with you because I preach it every single week that we meet every single Sunday. As we gather together as a church, we come together on Sunday, worshiping on Sunday because Sunday was the day that he resurrected. We don't worship on Saturday anymore while he was in the tomb, but rather we worship him because he has been made alive. And so here's what I wanna ask you. I, I don't wanna ask you the question, do you believe this? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is Savior? Do you believe that he is Lord? Do you believe that he died for you? I don't want to ask that because there's a good chance that if you are a culturally grew up as a Christian here in the South, you would sit there and check every single one of those boxes and say, yes, right on. I, I understand every single one of those. The question I want to ask for you this morning is, have you been born again?
Have you been born again? There's a huge difference in the people that I minister to, to people who have a bunch of cognitive understanding of all these things and the moment that they go from death into life. There's a young man that I have been uh, just discipling, doing one-on-one discipleship with, and he is just such a great joy. He grew up in this area, cultural Christian as well, grew up in church. All his buddies were Christians. He was a Christian, went through the old baptism, went through everything. And, and then something happened during COVID. God saved him during COVID. Can you believe it? God saves during COVID. I didn't think it was possible, but it was possible. He ended up coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we we're sitting down, we were talking about his testimony. One of the things we began to talk about is how difficult it is now to be able to go back to people that he grew up with, that he knew that they went to church with him. They were no longer in church. And he's trying to describe to them what is different about it. He's he's using the same words. He goes, yeah, but I believe in Christ. And they go, yeah, yeah, we all believe in Christ. We did that a long time ago. No, 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 no. I mean, I really, really believe in Jesus. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, but I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, bro, we get that. And it's so hard to explain. Does anybody of you know what I'm talking about? And the difference is it was a dead man speaking before a bunch of truths, and now it's a live man speaking where these things have become a reality, and you're trying to explain it, and nobody gets it. It reminds me very much of John 9. Do you remember the man that was blind from birth? He, from birth, he was blind, and then finally Jesus comes up, and he heals him, and he sees for the very first time. Really kind of a weird story. Go back and read it. And, and, and all of a sudden, you can see, well, uh, you know, everybody wants to know how in the world he, he gained his sight. How'd you do this? He says, well, Jesus put some mud on there, and he healed me very good. And then they drag him to somebody else, and they go, so tell us, how did this happen? And they keep asking, and finally he's annoyed. He's like, bro, I can't really even explain it. All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. And when people see, they worship Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way this morning. I'm not trying to sit there and get you to do better. Do better, worship more so he'll accept you. No, 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 no. If you're accepted by Christ, by faith, grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, there's something in you that changes. You are reborn, you are new, and the things that seem to be just mm, not great at all now are wondrous because of this following of Jesus Christ, of loving him, of wanting to know his word. Have you been born again? If not... If you will call out mercy and grace to Jesus, he will save you, he will forgive you, he will restore you, he will make you alive unto God spiritually, and he will affirm eternal life in you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning. And Lord, just the opportunity to gather together, to search your word, to learn your word. God, I pray that you have, we have made much of you this morning. We've learned of your compassion, we've learned of your power, and we've learned of your praise. Right now is a time to praise you for our salvation. God, I pray for those who are here who are wrestling. God, I pray right where they are, right where they are, and they know who they are. God, right now that they will call out and say, God, this has just been a cultural Christianity deal for me. I want the real thing. I want to be born again. I want you to change me. I want you to change my passions, change my desires. Lord, I want to live a life of worship for you. And God, if they're already saying that, then Lord, they've already been born again. Because that is a demonstration that somebody has been regenerated and changed and made new. God, may we respond by faith this morning, Lord, by what we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.